We have two scriptures this morning, one from the Gospel of John and the other from the second letter to Timothy from Paul. Here now from the Gospel of John. If I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There's another who testifies on my behalf, and I know that his testimony to me is true. You sent messengers to John, and he testified to the truth, not that I accept such human testimony, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But I have a testimony greater than John's, the works that the Father has given me to complete, the very works that I am doing. Testify on my behalf that the Father has sent me, And the Father who sent me has himself testified on my behalf. You have never heard his voice or seen his form, and you do not have his word abiding in you, because you do not believe him whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that testify on my behalf. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. I do not accept glory from human beings, but I know that you do not have the love of God in you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me. If another comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe when you accept glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the one who is alone God? Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom you have set your hope. If you believed Moses, you would have believed in me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe what he wrote, how will you believe what I say? And then from 2 Timothy. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient, equipped for every good work. The word of the Lord. Two weeks ago, we started a series on Easter called The Word of God. Now, the point of this series, my purpose to this very short series, just three weeks that we're doing, is to look at how God has revealed himself to us. So when we typically think of the idea of the word of God, we think of revelation. Not the book of revelation, but of something being revealed to us about who God is. And we can think of the word of God in many different contexts. And so the first week when we were in Easter, when we were celebrating Easter morning, we talked about the word of God being Jesus himself, as John looked at it. That in the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God. And in the beginning was the word with God. So Jesus was preexistent. Jesus is equal to God. Jesus is God. And yet God, the word of God, became flesh became human for the purpose of giving us the final and the ultimate revelation of who God is to us. 
And so we looked that week about the fact that, that we have great hope in the Word of God, not because it's some words written on a text, but because the Word of God is a living, breathing human being who is with God and who is interceding on our behalf with God. He understands us. He lived the life like we live. He experienced all of human nature. He was hungry. He had stomach pains. He got the flu. All the things that we experience as humans, he experienced. And yet he sits at the right hand of God interceding on our behalf. And we know that he is God himself who has come to know our experience and to show us who he is. And what an amazing, amazing, mind-blowing concept that is. And that should take us a lifetime to really integrate into our thinking and really begin to get to know. This week we're looking at the written word of God. And I want to say this before I start. I have loved being your pastor. And today might be my last Sunday because after you hear my sermon today, some of you might gain a committee together and decide to fire me. This is a difficult topic to talk about scripture, right? There are lots of opinions on scripture out there. Whole denominations have split from each other based on their views of the scriptures and their views obtained from reading the scriptures. So the scriptures, the written word of God, are an incredibly controversial topic. And there'd be no way for me to speak about this topic this morning without making some of you angry at me. Okay? Some of you are already angry at me. (laughs) And probably about other stuff, and that's okay. Come talk to me about it. I'm okay with your anger with me. I'm angry with me most of the time. That's what you don't get. When you come and you're going to tell me that you're angry with me, you're just going to get somebody who's also angry with you agreeing with you. Yeah, you're right. That guy's a jerk. So come talk to me when you think that I've done something to hurt you. I will apologize because I probably have done something wrong or I have done something insensitive. If this morning anything in my sermon ruffles your feathers, call me, email me, text me, and set up a time for us to have lunch. And let's talk about it more. Because there's no way on this Sunday morning that I can say enough to satisfy everybody in this room or to give everybody a a depth of what my understanding of the scriptures is. So take it for what it is. But this is an overview of the scriptures. That also being said, this is going to be a very long sermon. I'm sorry. What is the scriptures? What is the written word of God? What is the Bible? Well, to start, it's a collection of literature. Okay, the word Bible itself comes from the Greek word biblia. Okay, the Greek word biblia. It's where the Latin word for um, library comes from. What's the Latin word for library? Or what's the Spanish word for library? Bibliotheque, right? And so it's the place of books. So when we have named our collection of scriptures the Bible off of the Greek word, what we're really saying is that it is a collection of a whole bunch of different books of writings. It's kind of like a library of ancient writings about God from a very specific tradition, the Jewish tradition and into the Christian tradition. Now, as Presbyterians and as good Protestants, we only have 66 books in our written word of God. Now, does, do all Christians only have 66 books? 
What, what else? What other Christians have other books? Yep, Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, pretty much everybody else but Protestants have additional books in their scriptures that are called the Apocrypha or the Apocryphal works. They are works from the Jewish tradition, but that date after the latest writing or the newest writing that we accept from the Jewish tradition and before the Gospels. They're what we call the intertestamental time. Many of those works were written in Greek. They weren't even written in Hebrew. There's no Hebrew uh, context to them at all. They were part of the Greek empire and the Greek-speaking world that the Jews existed in once Greece spread itself all over the Mediterranean and beyond. And so as the Protestants looked at the scriptures and we were deciding what books to add in and what books not to, we left out those books because we did not feel that they were authoritative to the story of Israel, that they came kind of later. And in that, we followed the Jewish tradition. Because the Jewish tradition of um, Hebrew people from very early on after Christianity decided on their own canon what books they would consider were scripture. And most of those, those traditions and most Jewish people denied those books as being authoritative as a part of their canon. So the Protestants decided to follow the Jewish belief about what belonged in the Old Testament and what didn't belong. Okay, so our Bible contains 66 books. Uh, it was written over the period, some people think, between 1,200 and 1,300 years, okay? That means that the entirety of Scripture, the oldest Scripture we have is somewhere near 1,200 to 1,300 years B.C., uh, and then the newest Scriptures is is sometime before the turn of the first century, okay? In the 90s or something like that is what, what some people believe. Now, others don't believe that. Others don't believe that 1,200 to 1,300 is accurate, but they say 700 to 900. Now, most of us can conceive of 1,200 to 1,300 years just about the same as 700 to 900, right? What kind of difference is that to the, those of us who aren't academics who are splitting hairs? Not very much. It means it was a long time, right? <laughs> it was a long time. Nine people who lived 100-year lifespans, which is very long, right, lived between the start of those books and the end of those books. It is a very long period of time, at the very least. And so things evolved. Culture changed. Languages changed. Okay? What was it written in? It was written in, first of all, Hebrew. The bulk of our scriptures, of our holy text in the Bible, were originally written in the language of the Hebrew people, a Semitic language called Hebrew. And it's a cousin of Arabic. It's a cousin of um, Phoenician. It's a cousin of Canaanite, of Ugaritic, of Aramaic. It's a cousin of all these other religion, or languages that were in that area, that region of Israel. Uh, but there is a very specific dialect and language that was spoken by the Hebrew people, and that's what they wrote their texts in. Now, here's the frustrating thing about being a Bible scholar. I love Greek. I love Greek. I've taken four, or actually probably more like five years of Greek classes, and I've studied extra biblical books in the Greek. And for me, Greek was something that just came really naturally. And then I took on Hebrew. And I took one year of Hebrew and decided it was not worth any of my time. 
Here's why. Here's why. The earliest Hebrew texts were written, what? 1,213, well, actually, 3,200, 3,500 years ago, right? A long time ago, 3,000 years ago is how long ago the earliest texts of the Hebrew text were written. The newest texts were written just a little over 2,000 years ago, okay? 2,200 years. Now, go and try and read a book that was written in English 600 years ago. How many of you have tried that? Do you understand it at all? Barely, right? The language has evolved in the last 600 years in tremendous ways. Well, guess what? That's the truth with all languages. So trying to understand the Hebrew in some of those older texts versus some of the newer texts is like trying to be a scholar of English so that you could read the Shakespeare in original text and understand everything it's saying and understand the newspaper today. Okay, that's such a gulf between the two. And so I thought... I can't barely understand English, and I speak it natively. (laughs) There's no way I'm going to master Hebrew enough to be able to really study the scriptures in Hebrew. So I trust men and women who are much smarter than me, and I look at their scholarship on the original language and the context, and I try and trust them because I don't think I can, if I spend a lifetime studying it, know it enough to do it for myself. Second language, Aramaic. Aramaic is the second language. There's very small sections of the Old Testament scriptures that are written in Aramaic, but pretty much the entire New Testament has an Aramaic underlaying to it. And what I mean by that is Aramaic was the language that was spoken by the Jewish people in the day of Jesus. So all over the Roman Empire, if you found a Jew, most likely they would speak Greek because the entire Roman Empire spoke Greek as the marketplace language. They probably, some of them would have spoke Latin, depending on how close they were to Rome. And all of them would have spoke Aramaic, and they all would have at least had an understanding of Hebrew. Okay? But in their homes, they would have spoke Aramaic. Uh, Now, Aramaic was basically kind of the common language of the Assyrian Empire. So how did the Jews end up speaking Aramaic? Well, they were conquered by the Assyrians, and they were kind of assimilated into the Assyrian culture, and they began to speak Aramaic, and it just stuck with them over the years. And in their home lives, they spoke Aramaic. Now, does anybody know another Jewish language that came much later that, uh, that Jewish people typically speak? Yiddish. Now, what is Yiddish? It is a combination of Hebrew and German, okay, and Aramaic and German. And so you see this happen when the Jewish people spread and go to other places. They begin to kind of adapt to the culture around them and, and speak the language, but, but integrate it with their way of thinking and integrate it with their culture and their language, and it becomes kind of almost a new thing. And so Aramaic was some of the scriptures in the Old Testament written it, and then all of the Gospels would have been translating Jesus speaking in Aramaic to the people he was speaking to into the last language that the Bible's written in, and that's Greek. The entire New Testament is written in Greek. Now, for many, many years, some of you probably don't know this, for many, many years, scholars of the Bible believed that the specific kind of Greek used in the New Testament was a totally unique language, a divine language that was made up by the Holy Spirit for the writing of Scripture. Did you guys know that? 
Because the Greek that we find in the New Testament is drastically different than the Greek that we find in Plato or Socrates or the other classical works of Greeks. And that is because the language of the New Testament is the language of the marketplace of the day that it was written in. So we call it today Koine Greek. Okay, Koine meaning fellowship. And so it was kind of the fellowship Greek. It was the marketplace Greek. It was the Greek that everybody would have spoke. It's kind of like reading an academic English textbook today versus going on the street and talking to kids who are using a bunch of urban language, right? And so there's a difference between kind of the colloquial things and the official things. And so Greek morphed and changed over time. And by the Roman Empire, it sounded on the street level very different than the classics. Now, if you could read classical Greek, you could read Koine Greek. If you could read Koine Greek, you could read classical Greek, but you'd have to do some learning to figure out what the word differences are in terms of the definition and how they're being used. So we learned over time as we uncovered more writings from that era that this Greek was not unique to the Bible, but it was a kind of Greek that was spoken in the marketplace of the time. The Bible is split into two halves or two parts, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, this is really kind of unfair labeling on our part, right? Ah, that old stuff back there. This is the new stuff, the better stuff, right? That's kind of the implication of it. There there would be a better way to put it. You can call it the Hebrew texts or the early Christian writings, but it doesn't really roll off the tongue as easily as the Old Testament or the New Testament, right? And so we kind of shorthand it to the old and the new. But really what it is, is it's the story of God with the Jewish people, with the Hebrew people throughout their history until Jesus the fulfillment of all the promises to the Jews, to the Hebrew people. And then it's the writings of those who are closest to Christ after he dies, raises from the dead, and ascended to heaven. So the earliest Christian writings is what we find in the New Testament. Okay, I want to ask a few questions today. Is it divinely inspired? Is it divinely inspired? I wasn't asking for an answer. (laughs) Because here's the thing, if I talked to each one of you this morning and I asked you this question, not only would all of you disagree, even those of you who would agree would agree in totally different ways that would cause you to start to argue with each other and you might not like each other after that conversation. As many opinions as there are in this room is as many answers as I would get to this question if I were to ask you. You all have very nuanced and different views about whether or not the scriptures are divinely inspired. What does that mean? Does that mean that God whispered into the ear of the authors of these texts an exact verbatim, word for word, that they then copied down onto paper and then meticulously copied paper, paper, paper over and over throughout the centuries until it came to us? Or is it that God, in his work with the people, moved their hearts and inspired them in such a way that they wrote their accounts down and it included much of their own character and context and culture and they... they, pass that down on, and there's truth in it about who God is and who God was to them, but it's not a verbatim. Or is it simply a human text? 
Is it simply human and that humans were writing down their experiences and trying to understand it the way, best way they could? God had no part in it. There might be God in their stories. They might have had real experiences with God. But God was not orchestrating in any way this text coming together. Or was it that there was oral traditions that were being passed down over the centuries from one to the other to the other, and then somebody in the post-exilic period of the Jewish people decided, we need a book, and they began to collect these oral traditions and pull them together and edited them so that they flowed together and, and brought together this collection of works. And God was in all of that somehow. Who knows? Anybody who tells you they have the answer to this question is lying to you because they don't know. And neither does Scripture say. But what about the passage you read this morning, Pastor Chris? It says all Scripture is inspired by God and useful for teaching and reproof and correction and training in righteousness. What is he talking about in Scriptures? What were his scriptures? What was his reference for the idea of scriptures? Paul was a Jew from the Greek-speaking world, which meant that he grew up speaking Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek, and Latin, and that he studied the Bible likely in the Greek, a translation known as the Septuagint, because 70 translators came together in Alexandria sometime around the turn of the first century B.C. and translated the Hebrew scriptures into Greek, and they included the Apocrypha, which is why the early church included the Apocrypha, and why Catholics and Eastern Orthodox do today. But beyond that, did you know that in Scripture, in some of the Old Testament passages, the Hebrew text, they will say, this war was fought, and lots has been written about it in this book, and if you want to know anything about it, Go read that book. And we have no idea what they're talking about. The book doesn't exist. It hasn't existed for a very long time. And we don't know when it or if it ever existed. Is that scriptures? The scriptures refer to it. Did Paul have those texts? Could he go to the library of the temple and unroll the scroll that that book of the Old Testament talks about and read the account that they were referring to? We don't know. We don't know. So what is Paul talking about? Is he talking about the 66 books the Protestant church has today in its collection? Definitely not. Because first of all, He's writing one of them when he says this, right? Second of all, he says it's inspired. What does that mean? What does it mean that it's inspired? Somebody give me the definition. Yeah, Bert's inspired all the time. This morning I was inspired to eat a donut. What does it mean? What did it mean to Paul that it's inspired, right? You see that there's much depth here that if you don't get at that, you'll miss something. You'll miss something. What did Paul mean by this? Well, I'm not going to get in that because it's a whole other series, a whole other sermon. But to suffice it to say, 
that when we talk about the scriptures being divinely inspired and we boil it into modern conceptions and modern ideas and we overlook the history of the collection of these sacred texts, we do a disservice to the text itself and we miss important things. What was Paul talking about? What was he saying? I don't know. Was it divinely inspired? My answer, I don't know. <laughs> yes and no. I get inspired to write a sermon. Hopefully this was inspired at some point this morning. What does it mean that it was inspired? Is the scripture divinely inspired? My answer is both yes and no. Both yes and no. Now, some of you are looking at me and thinking, you're crazy. Why did we hire this guy? This guy is a nutso. And yet, if you come and talk to me and we have more time to flesh this out, I think that you'll understand what I mean by it. But I don't have that time this morning. So you're just going to have to stew in this for a little while and invite me to lunch and pay for my lunch. <laughs> See, this is all a ploy to get free lunches out of you guys. This is what I mean. This is what I mean. The Bible, I believe, is incredibly divine. It is filled with the divinity of God because it is filled with the stories of God interacting with his people over time and history. And so it is filled with a revelation of who the divine is towards us, his creatures. But the Bible is also incredibly human, incredibly human. It's filled with snapshots of times and places written in languages that arose from cultures and people that are long divorced from us today. Do you get what I'm saying? Do you get the beauty the magnificence, the amazingness of this idea over some simplistic idea that it was just dictated by God into the ears of some prophets? Do you get the glory, the amazingness that it is both divine and human? Does it sound like anything else? Jesus. The Bible itself is God's literary foreshadowing of the incarnation. If that doesn't give you chills, leave. <laughs> that should make you inspired. That somehow as God brought these texts together through whatever means, he showed us what it meant that he would need to become flesh, to become human, and to speak to us on our level and in our experience so that we might be raised up into the divine and understand him as our creator. What a magnificent and glorious idea and powerful idea because that means that this text can be translated into whatever culture and whatever language and because of the power of what it is being both divine and human it can reach all humanity with the divine not every religion is like that 
Many other religions protect their text, refuse for it to be taken out of its original culture, its original language, and you must bend towards it. It'll never bend towards you. And yet there's so much power in the Christian scriptures that it can be applied to all of human culture and still transform lives in newness in Jesus no matter where it goes. That is magnificent. And amazing. But saying all that, you know you guys have heard me say this before. It is important that you know context, context, context. Right? And the people who translate the Bible into other languages, what is their main skill? It's not verbal or linguistic translation. It is cultural translation. It is understanding the culture that the text is coming from and the culture to which they're trying to communicate. And it is translating more than just the words, but the culture from one to the other so that the new culture can understand the context from which our sacred texts come from, our sacred scriptures come from. Now, if you don't believe me, I'm going to put a series of words on the screen, and I want you to all read them on the count of three. Okay, are you guys ready? Okay, one... Two, three. Ah, wait a minute. Half of you said read, and half of you said read. Why can't you read this word correctly, people? Because you need context. Last week, I, 100% of you said the right word. Right? Context tells you how to understand this word because the English language is terrible. And everybody who tries to learn the English language knows that it's the worst language on earth. And it has no rules. It just goes all over the place. And we have words that literally are spelled the same way but said in different ways depending on the context. Or sound the same but are spelled completely different, right? Let's do another one. One, two, three. I heard tear and I heard tear. Okay? The context. I fell and got a tear in my jeans. All right, what about one more, just for fun? One, two, three. Bow. Oh, everybody said bow. No. bow. Okay, there's more people said bow, okay. <laughs> the context, it is a tradition to bow as a sign of respect in some cultures. Now, what if I said bow? What does bow mean? Oh, it could be two different things, right? It could be a bow and arrow, or it could be a bow I tie in my hair. Very different things. Don't mix them up, okay? Context, context, context. Every single human communication requires and demands context for it to be understand, understood. Sometimes you could say things horribly, and people still understand you <laughs> because of context, all right? Context, context, context. In order for us to understand the scriptures, we must understand their context. Which means what? Understanding scriptures takes work. All of you wanted to avoid work so bad you came up with every word but work. Time, study, work. It takes work. You can't just open the scriptures and start reading and expect that you'll know exactly what it means just off the top of your head. 
Okay? There is context to that passage, the immediate context of the passages around it, the immediate book that it is contained in, but then the history that goes behind, the community it was written to, the author who was writing it, all of these things which books in the world have been filled up with writing about. It takes work. That means that if you are going to be a serious disciple of Jesus and you believe that this book is going to tell you something about God in Jesus, then you need to work at it. Read it. Read what other people have said about it. Talk to people who have more knowledge than you. Try to understand the best you can the context. Pray for the Spirit to open your eyes and to guide you in your reading of it so that you not only understand the human context, you understand the spiritual context. And you can learn and be transformed in the Spirit through the reading of this Word. It takes work. And unfortunately... You should be doing it if you are going to follow Christ. Okay, what are some pitfalls? What are some pitfalls to our understanding of Scripture? Well, I want to say that pitfall number one is this, forgetting the humanity of the Scriptures. Horrible, horrible atrocities have been committed in the name of the Scriptures because people forgot about the humanity of these texts. Because they saw them as simply a description of God's exact words written down in somebody's ear, and they took it to be this authoritative meaning, and it was not the meaning out of context, but it was their own meaning they wanted from it. They oppressed or did horrible things to people. Now, much of the systematic slavery of the African people and the dispersion of the African people around the world as slaves, and then the resulting racism that happened in the United States post-slavery, was justified by many different scriptural quotes. Because the users of those scriptures were forgetting the humanity of the texts and they were reading into it what they wanted and then giving it to it an authority of divine command and then using that for their own will. So a pitfall is forgetting that there's a context, that there's a history, that there was a God working in time and history with a people that led to these texts coming into our hands today. On the other side, pitfall number two is forgetting the divinity. If you tear it down to be purely a human book, you will miss something important in the wider story of Scripture. Because I believe from beginning to end that Scripture tells one story, the story of God with human beings, and that if we miss the divinity that is contained there in those texts, that we will miss something important about who God is, who he's created us to be, and how we are to treat one another. And we began to just decide whatever is good in our own eyes. Anybody ever recognize that where that text comes from? Judges, right? And every time you see that phrase in Judges, everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Everything after it really is a bad account of things, right? Everything after it is horrible. People are doing horrible things to each other. When we decide our own right and wrong, our own good and evil, we always get it wrong. And we end up doing terrible things to each other and to our world in the name of our own brilliance and our own arrogance. 
So we can't forget the divinity in the scripture. The third thing, and this is going to be hard for some people, I think, to understand, is worshiping the text over the one the text points to. Worshiping the text over the one the text points to. Listen, there are many Christians in this world who if you were to somehow argue with them about the text in some way that caused them to have disillusionment with with how they understood that text, they'll lose their faith. I've known them. Their faith disappears as soon as you prove to them that the text doesn't say what they thought the text said. Who are they worshiping? Not Not the Jesus that the text points to. They're worshiping their own understanding of the text. Correct? They have this understanding, this conception of what it says. And yet, if it can be proven that that's not what it says, their faith dissolves because their faith ultimately was in themselves. And they worship a God of their own design rather than the one that the text actually points to. This is a difficult difficult concept for us in the United States because it's been the dominant thought within Christianity for quite some time. That, that the text and our understanding of the text is so important. And it was such a pivotal part of the Reformation. And yet, Martin Luther, the famous German reformer in the 16th century, believed so much that Jesus was the central point of all of the scriptures that he was willing to rank them based on which one more obviously stated who Jesus Jesus was. These ones less important because they don't really obviously state who Jesus is. These ones more important because they clearly state who Jesus is. That was his view of things. So it's not baked within us. So what is the purpose of the Bible? I just said it and I've been saying it the entire time if you've been listening. The purpose of the Bible is the same thing Jesus said in our John passage that we read earlier. Is what? To point to him. All of it. The Old Testament and the New Testament. Because at the time, there was no New Testament. When Jesus said those words, only the Old Testament existed. So he meant that all the Hebrew texts were meant to point to his necessity, to him coming and being on this earth to be the final revelation of God to us. Not as some abstract words written on a page, but as a living and active God with us in the flesh. What an amazing, amazing thing that all the scriptures point to Jesus. Because Jesus is the living word of God. And you cannot know God unless you know the living word of God. And so these written words, these written texts, all point to Jesus and all show us who God is in Jesus. And the amazing thing is last week, Mike, come on up. We talked about the, the most important revelation of who God was, right? The, the, the scriptures it spent an inordinate amount of time on the last week of Jesus' life and on the last day of Jesus' life. They spent so much time explaining what this meal means because it was in this act that God most showed us that he's worthy of our trust and our faith in him. 
that he loves us, that he's not a God who has some kind of list that he's checking off. He's not a God who is, who is just looking to punish us for every little thing that we've done wrong. He is a God who desires something specific for us because he created us in a specific way. And even if we rebel against him, he'll go to such great lengths to even die on the cross for us so that we would come to trust in him as our life. And that's this table. And when we come to this table, we come recognizing that we are nothing without him. And that it's in the living word of God, broken for us and raised for us, that we find real life. Let us pray. Now receive the charge and benediction. Go and be mystified by our holy texts, the Bible. Not because you control it, not because you manipulate it, not because you understand it or you hold it in the palm of your hands, but because it tears you apart and reforms you in the image of Jesus. Be torn apart by the scriptures so that Jesus might put you back together in his word, in his name for the world. And be a blessing to the world in the name of the true living word, Jesus Christ, that you might be his ambassador now and forevermore. Amen.